Will Schroeder was born in 1975 and launched his first company in 1994. That company was an agency, which he grew to $1.6 million in sales by 1995. And ultimately, two years later in 1997, sold 51% of the company for north of a million dollars. He was 22 years old, and this was his first cash event in life that gave him a little cushion. Ultimately, that new company grew to about $150 million in top line sales and $25 million of net income. That company then was bought by Dan Snyder in 2002, the current owner of the Washington football team. That was a $300 million deal and was a second cash event for Will as he looked at what to do next. That next thing ended up becoming startups.com, a full encompassing suite of tools to help entrepreneurs launch their business, but it wasn't always easy. Will went through many different ideas like Swap a Lease or Ford It, an early version of a firm which is about to go public. Many of these companies he raised for, but ultimately shut down or failed, or they kind of just hum and hoed along. But ultimately, startups.com pursued a strategy of buying companies and growing ones internally like Fundable. Today, the platform does over $10 million in revenue. It's an eight-figure business, has over 100 employees, and Will continues to scale it. In this interview, we dive into how we acquired all these assets, like Zirtual.com, which back in August of 2015 was doing $11 million in top-line revenue and $5 million in costs, helping brands get freelancing teams up and running, essentially virtual assistants. But ultimately what happened was that company two or three days later was in a lot of trouble, according to the CEO, and Will ended up taking it over in a 24-hour all-stock deal. We dive into Will's entire backstory, all of these deals, and how startups.com came to be today in this wide-ranging interview. Let's jump in. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Will Schroeder. And if the name rings a bell, it's because he's building an empire, an empire focused on startups at startups.com. He's built this thing starting with his own incubator. Now, multiple brands under that one company really focused on helping that early stage entrepreneur do a variety of things, which we'll dive into today. But it all started back in 1994, which we're going to dive into here at the top of the episode. Will, are you ready to rock and roll? <laughs> Let's get at it. All right. So we will, we won't bury the lead here. So talk about just sort of give the bullet point of where you're at today. So startups.com, what's it doing? Uh, right. So, you know, we're helping startups from the uh, idea stage all the way through the growth stage and uh, having built a ton of startups and we'll get into this and, you know, spend an inordinate amount of time with founders over the years. Uh, we've learned that a lot of the mistakes entrepreneurs make, uh, a lot of the challenges they were into are all the same. You know, they could start all different businesses, but more or less, they kind of run into the same challenges. And so we basically just built a platform that took them through all those challenges with a combination of uh, education to kind of learn about all this stuff that you wouldn't know about, uh, community where we've got 20,000 mentors that kind of help you answer all the questions you couldn't possibly answer yourself, and then tools. You get things like business planning tools, fundraising tools, et cetera, uh, that help you get over those major hurdles. Mm -hmm. We've got a little over a million companies in the platform. Uh, we were bootstrapped, started in 2012. Uh, it's an eight-figure business with uh, a little over 200 employees. There you guys go. So guys, we're going to dive into all of that. But again, wouldn't be possible today unless Will created some early momentum and call it his entrepreneurial career. Will, we talk about this all the time. It's really important to get you know the first exit or at least your first sort of cash event under your belt as early as possible so you can start to compound that. So take us back. Sure. What were you doing in 1994? Uh, in, in 1994, um, leading up to kind of what was the beginning of the internet revolution, um, 
I was on no track whatsoever to start a business. I didn't, I didn't care about business whatsoever. Uh, I was a theater major. I was an actor, <laughs> which, which a lot of people look back at and say, oh man, do you miss acting? And what they wouldn't know is I wasn't an actor because I was so interested in the theater. I was an actor because I didn't even get into college. The only major that would make sense for me because I, I was so non-academic was theater because I, how hard could that be to study for theater? Not knocking people who do, just saying for me, it just didn't seem like a, maybe the hardest thing to do. Um, and I was just coasting through college uh, at best because at the time I had two full-time jobs, so coasting being relative, and college just wasn't important to me. Um, I like how learning. old were you? How old were you at this point? You were born in 1975, I believe. So you were how old? Uh, so uh, let's see. I would have been yeah, roughly 19, give or take. Okay. Uh, so, okay. and you know, it, it's important to know because a lot of times when you hear about entrepreneurs building something and kind of hear their backstory how they built something, you really don't understand where their head was at even going into it. You know, a lot of what you'll hear is because I've talked to a million founders. Uh, I had this crappy job or I had this opportunity and I saw somebody else and it inspired me, et cetera. I came into it just backward. Uh, the only reason I understood anything about technology was because when I was, I'm trying to think back, probably nine or 10 years old, uh, I had one of the first computers, a Commodore 64 computer, and I'm a huge video gamer. So I loved, loved, loved trading video games. What was your go-to video game back then? The, the one you traded that you made the most off of? Well, the, the one that changed my life was a game called Fourth and Inches, which was a football game. It was around like, okay. the Tech Mobile era. And, uh, and it was on the Commodore 64. And I go over Jeff Zapatka's house. And Jeff has a copy of Fourth and Inches. But like back then, you couldn't just get games. You couldn't download them, or so I thought. Um, you just had these five and a quarter inch floppy disks. And if, if a buddy had one, you had access to it. You could copy it. And it was the most beautiful thing in the world. But that was our, our go-to um, uh, kind of currency. And so Jeff Zapaka somehow has fourth and inches out of the blue. And so I'm like, dude, how did you get this? And he says, well, I downloaded it. I'm like, whoa, whoa, what's, what's a download, right? Now, mind you, this is like circa 85, 86. So this is yeah. a very long time ago. And this is way, 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 way prior to the internet as we know it. Yeah, you're like 12, 13 at the time. Uh, no, it's 10. Uh, so it's 10, 10 70, okay. 74, this would have been 84, 85, so 10 or 11. I mean, you know, yeah. pretty young. And, uh, and I said, hold on, what's a modem? He's like, you got to understand. You plug it into your computer and you plug it into your house line and it calls another computer. Again, this is like pre-AOL the way we would have known it or anything else like that. This is when you just called one other dude. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I was like, wait, so let me get this straight. If I can get a modem, I could call somebody else's computer and get fourth and inches for free? And he's like, you could. That's all it took. That very moment, sitting at Jeff Zapatka's house, was the very moment I became an entrepreneur. Should we know who that is, by the way? That, I don't know that name. Should we know who that is? is he some oh, famous? totally important. This is one okay, of those just things make where sure. it's just some random kid. <laughs> you know, maybe someday Jeff Zapatka listens to this. But yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. No, it's, it's not like Jeff Bezos. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so, uh, anyway, um, uh, I tell my dad, I'm like, hey, dad, I really need to get this, this modem thing. My dad has no idea what, he's, what I'm talking about. He's a carpenter. And uh, he's like, you go mow lawns, you know, plow driveways, do what you do um, in order to get uh, some money. So I save the money. I get and which city money. were you doing this in? Where were you born? Uh, this is in uh, Fairfield, Connecticut. Connecticut, uh, okay. it, it, More specifically Monroe at the time, but same area. And uh, I save up enough money. 
I buy this modem. And funny thing about that, the modem basically works just like a telephone, okay? But it, except set up to call other computers. Um, but the moment you pl plug it into your parents' line and call someone else, you're tying up the line for basically, in an, in, you know, in forever. <laughs> and so the moment I plugged that, com that uh, computer to the modem, modem to the uh, house line, was the last time I think my parents ever got a, a, an inc incoming call. It was a busy <laughs> signal for like the next seven years. And but but here's what was so amazing about this turning point. And I didn't appreciate it at the time. And this is one of those things where you know, when parents look at their kids, you don't really understand the things that are going to kind of change the the trajectory of their lives. Uh, I went all in because I wanted as many computer games as possible. Mm -hmm. I built a bulletin board system, which was you know kind of our equivalent now of a website. And started trading with all kids all over Southern Connecticut and into New York and got way, way into it. And it was just a hobby. So no, no, no commercialization on, yet? None whatsoever. Okay. But later on, as time would evolve and soon the internet would come around, think about it. By the time people were building the first web pages on the internet, I'd been building stuff like that for 10 years. Like mm -hmm. none of it was new to me, right? Mm -hmm. when, when the web came around and HTML had maybe 40 commands, I was like, oh, this isn't complicated. This is no different than a lot of the stuff I've been doing. So I just happened to be in this pole position to build internet technology when most people didn't understand what the internet was. So, so take again, me forward to that first dollar. Where did you make your first dollar? You, you got a sense of what it was like to make your own money, to sell something. In my family, I've got a very big family, about 80 cousins. Um, no one's ever been to college. Everyone just works kind of hand to mouth. And one of the things is the day you graduate high school, um, you're on your own. There's no like, hey, hang out at home. There's no, we're putting you through college because there is no college. And uh, so when I turned 17 or around the time I was 17, when I graduated, uh, I moved out of the house almost like the day I graduated. I got two full-time jobs. Uh, during the day, I was a telemarketer uh, selling mainframe computers. This is circa 92. Uh, at night, I made delicious sandwiches at this place called D'Angelo's, which was like a subway at the time. And so I worked from, from eight to five and then five to one every day. And I had so much energy back then. Like people now are like, oh my God, two full-time jobs. Well, it's like, who cares? I got all this extra time, right? I'm otherwise sleeping. Uh, but, but at the end of my senior year, I had this other kind of bizarre moment. Uh, and this, all these things are going to tie together. Um, at the end of my senior year in high school, all my friends at the lunch table are sitting around talking about uh, where they're going to go to college. And this is such a loser moment. It occurs to me at that time that I haven't even applied for college. Like, I, I didn't even know that was an option. And so it gets around to me and like, hey, well, where are you going to college? I'm like, I'm going to UConn because everybody else was going to University of Connecticut. And so played it off like nothing happened. Then it ends up getting back to my family, most specifically my grandmother, that I was getting into college. Mind you, my family didn't really understand college real well. So all of a sudden, I'm like the golden child. Oh, Will is finally going off to college. And I'm like, oh, come on, man. And so uh, instead of just letting everybody down gracefully, I instead started going to college for almost an entire year without actually being a student. So I had my two full-time jobs uh, when I graduated. And then on the weekends, I went to school full-time as an actor. It was this bizarre kind of chain of events. Uh, a year later, I transferred to Ohio State University. Uh, where I've had kind of a business and a home ever since. And the Ohio State transfer, was that a legitimate, like there was, you got in, there was something you wanted to study? Uh, I was still an actor because the funny thing is I still didn't care about college. Although I'll say this, 
when you're making $5 an hour and that's what you're using to pay tuition, you kind of have to start to care about college a little or mm-hmm. you really shouldn't be there. By the mm-hmm. way, I was more in the camp of I probably shouldn't be there. I hated mm-hmm. college. So how much do you, I mean, do you remember how much did you, had you saved up working at D'Angelo's and as a telemarketer before you applied to OSU? I mean, how much was in your bank at that point? You remember? Zero. I, I okay. mean, I, I was making was a break even. a week. Oh yeah. And I was taking out these, you know, Pell grants and, and student loans and things like that just to, to pay for it. School wasn't quite as expensive as it is today. But I'd also say when you're broke making $5 an hour, school can be uh, you know, $10,000 for tuition or $10 million tuition. Either way, you're broke. So let's move forward here and get out of your teens. 1994 to 1995, you're 19 turning 20. You decide to open yep. a 2,000 square foot office across from the OSU campus for a new company, I believe, called NextGen Digital Advertising. Where did you get the idea and what the company do? Okay, so what was happening was uh, I was starting to see that the web was kind of taking form and there was very few companies doing anything with it yet because it's kind of hard to think back to, but no one understood what it was. Like you, yeah. you were maybe one of a handful of people in the whole world that really understood what the internet was. Um, now, mind you, I'm on a college campus in the Midwest in, in the United States and people definitely don't know what it is. And so uh, I ended up starting this, this company and uh, I was one of the first web design companies. And I'm walking up and down campus trying to talk to business owners to tell them what the internet is and if I can explain to them what the internet is, why they would need a web page and why they would need me to build it. And you know, just through sheer sales, I had you know, restaurant owners and bit bar owners and stuff like that paying me to develop a, a web page for a technology they'd never used and wouldn't understand for another three to five years. But I was making hundreds of dollars, and it doesn't sound like a lot, but to me, with where I was in life, it was all the money in the world. So how much did you do that first year? Do you remember total sort of bookings in 1994? It would have been, I don't know exactly, it would have been ones of thousands of dollars. Yeah, yeah, so mind, something between called 1,000 and 10,000, something like that. Mind you, how many things weren't going your way back then? Number one, there was no reference point whatsoever if you wanted to start a business as to where to go and how to do it, right? Remember, like people didn't even have email yet, not in a meaningful way. You couldn't Google anything. It hadn't been invented yet. Uh, and your best resources were maybe something on, in college or maybe a professor who maybe did something 20 years ago. I mean, it was a tough start. On top of that, you had no way to do customer acquisition. I mean, I was mm-hmm. driving door to door to businesses to ask them if they wanted to buy a webpage. I mean, it and was, you'd sell it to them for like 300, 400, 500 bucks. I didn't understand pricing either. All I understood was $300 was $5 this many hours. It's a lot of hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So are you, you're not working, you're still not working at D'Angelo's at this point to doing telemarketing. Are you, or are you? I did really well at the telemarketing job, which actually uh, did wonders for helping me secure a job in Ohio. So I ended up quitting D'Angelo's, working at the mainframe computer sales company doing telemarketing, uh, and then transferring to a company uh, in Ohio of all places. I didn't even know what Ohio was. Uh, It was a company called Seacom, definitely not around anymore. uh, And we were selling uh, essentially mainframe computers. Okay. But when did you stop Seacom then? When you launched NGDA? I did. I did. Um... And at the time, uh, I remember thinking, like, I have no idea what it means to start a business. It didn't feel like a business the way we think about it now, because we see a Mark Zuckerberg and we think of what a business can be. Mine was just a means to an end. Mm -hmm. I wanted to build web pages 
just more than I wanted to sell mainframe computers. There wasn't a lot of passion in it yet because there was no way to know what you could get out of it, right? Mm -hmm. It just seemed like just another scheme, if you will. So, so take us forward that, yeah, take us forward to the next year, 1995. What, what happened in 95? What did you get? Did you build the team at all? Were you on the same spot? How many, how much in bookings did you hit? Um, not much. Uh, we're still doing ones of thousands, maybe tens of thousands at most, but mm-hmm. we're starting to get access to bigger clients. Um, some of our bigger clients around that time were like Chase Bank, um, uh, MasterCard, Intel. And, and when people hear those names, like, wow, those must be huge contracts. Nope still selling projects for ones of thousands of dollars. I had no idea how pricing works, right? I just didn't understand. I wasn't an agency guy. I didn't have access to an agency guy. So I'm selling this stuff so I could get these guys on my, my resume, my portfolio, but no idea what I should be charging. At the same time, I don't really know what I should be paying my staff. And they're all students, so they don't kind of have to work for anything. But there was no big upside back then of, hey, maybe I'll work for equity and make money. Back then, people didn't understand equity. They were just like, you're either going to pay me or you're not. Yep. And so uh, anyway, so uh, we start growing by virtue of getting more portfolio clients, but not really making a lot of money. Uh, A year later, we get connected with a a small ad agency called GSW. Uh, GSW had been a Columbus-based agency, traditional agency, for 20 plus years at that point. Um, And they brought in a new executive. Uh, a guy named Blaine Walter, great guy. Uh, his dad had started Cardinal Health, which is one of the largest companies in the world. Um, and Blaine was really fired up about growing the agency. And I remember he and I sat down at a restaurant. I was 22 at the time. He was 26. And I said, Blaine, hear me out on this. Imagine for a moment, we combined our powers. We take my team of as like 10 or 12 people, and your team of 40 plus, and we could have an agency with over... 50 people. <laughs> it's like so mind-blowing at the time. And so we ended up doing that. We ended up combining the agencies. And lo and behold, this is the craziest thing, man. Three months later, uh, Blaine lands us an opportunity to pitch a pharmaceutical company um, out of Indianapolis known as Eli Lilly. Wait, so hold on, hold on. Before we get to that, hold on. Let me, let me, let me close some loose ends on this real quick. So just to summarize, So you'd sort of built this up, uh, 94, 95, 96, still doing your own thing. In 97, you meet Blaine via GSW, which was a small ad agency, but it had been launched back, I believe it was 1977, and Blaine joined as an account manager at some point in like 95, and he was an up-and-coming star at GSW. He met you how? Uh, We had been doing a little bit of work for the agency with one of their uh, products, and so we just kind of, you know, met through the work. I see. Okay. And so, yeah. So, so before we talk about what the merged company looked like, walk me through how that actually happened. So were you both the exact same size? Was it 50, 50, how the economics work? I mean, this um, is your first big transaction, by the way, this must've been exciting. Like take me into your head. I, I, I do nothing. Um, <laughs> again, I, I had no reference point. Again, you still couldn't really look up anything on the internet. All I knew is that a lot of agencies were starting to get big in the digital space. Uh, one of the hot agencies at the time was Razorfish yep. and and I was watching this meteoric rise and some of these companies were sell, starting to uh, list to go public. And I said, this is just too big of an opportunity. I've got to attach myself to something bigger than what I've got. I've got to kind of accelerate my growth. And so um, they end up buying essentially half of my agency. And um, by, that, by that point, like I'm still running the agency as CEO. 
they didn't want to run a digital agency. They just wanted to have access to a digital agency. And back then, traditional advertising was really important. Not that it's not important now, but it's just, the landscape's changed so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but having the, the, uh, the access and uh, the ability to bring that to bear, both digital and offline uh, advertising, was a big deal, which is kind of where that leads to that, that Eli Lilly opportunity. So hold on there, though. On the, GS, so on the GSW deal, when he comes in and gets 50%, so a couple questions here, because the GSW thread here is when I have to pull through the rest of your history as well. Sure, so yeah, I, yeah. I, that's yeah. why I'm asking so many questions here for the audience. Um, had Blaine already, was he sole decision maker at GSW? Had he already bought out the previous partner, so he owned 100% of GSW at that point? He did not. Um, okay. I, 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 I don't think he'd want me to share all of his details, but uh, he did not. There, there were other he, partners. Yeah. He eventually did. The reason I ask is he, he did at some point buy the rest of GSW from the other partners. I was just curious if it happened before or after he merged with you. Uh, there was GS and W, the three uh, founding partners, and I believe he was in the process of buying out the W, uh, but the Got G it. and the S uh, were both fully active. Okay. But, so he, okay. but he was really the one leading the charge for them to buy 50% of your company. Yeah. And I think beyond that, um, they just, I mean, by 97, you couldn't do anything without hearing internet. And so I think everyone was trying to figure out how to do something with the word internet in it, whether it was a good idea or not. Um, Ours wound up being a a real good deal. But beyond that, everyone was trying to swing for internet at the time. And was that sort of a meaningful, one of the things I always look with every entrepreneur when I try and reverse engineer their story is like the first sort of meaningful cash event where it's not like I'm covering rent and food and gas every month. Now I have some to play with. Was this sort of that first moment for you where you had some extra cash to play with after that deal? It was. And I'll, I'll expand on that just a little bit. Uh, I won't go into too many specifics, but, but uh, you'll definitely get the point. Um, up until that point, I had been living in uh, either my college dorm, or my, my college uh, campus apartment. And so post deal, I have enough money to go buy a house, to go buy a car, to, you know, to do like the basic things in life. And and I I learned a forever lesson at that moment. The difference between being broke and wealthy is a very small sum of money. In other words, especially early in your career, I was 22 at the time. Um, If you can, if you can pull together enough cash to buy a house, to buy a car, to furnish your house, which by the way is not cheap. Um, and to pay off debts, you know, all these things that I did, um, you are about as rich as you're ever going to be. A lot of people don't get that. A lot of people think, well, I need to make $10 million or 20 or 100. And that's just not true. The truth is, especially early in your career, if you can take down a lump sum of money that can get you fast forwarded through all the stuff that you're going to spend the next 20 years of your life trying to get to, that is one of the greatest kind of step advantages you'll ever get. Yep. Now you did a, you did an interview with a local outlet in Columbus, uh, where you, I just want to make sure I read this correctly, where you summarize some of the bookings growth at NGDA. So you said in 1995, NGDA saw 1 million in bookings in 96, it grew to about 1.5 million in bookings. And in 1997, NGDA, NGDA saw 3.5 million in bookings with a five man design team. Was that about right? 1997? I think so. Uh, whatever I was quoting at the time would have been more accurate information than I can remember now. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume it was pretty accurate. <laughs> good, it was a good, long time ago. Good answer. Good answer. Okay. So, so GSW sort of comes in, buys a controlling interest uh, in the company. And according again to an interview that you and Blaine did back then, you didn't give an exact amount, but the quote was it reached the seven figures. So we'll mm-hmm. say north of a million dollars is what he paid to buy controlling interest in NGDA. Is that accurate? Okay. 
Now let's go into afterwards. Now we understand it all comes together. What happens next? You guys are merged. Okay, so, uh, but what happens next is kind of what, what really mattered in this whole thing. Uh, Blaine did an amazing job of getting us in to pitch Eli Lilly uh, for a bunch of their products that they are, they are coming off patent, which is, or, or going on patent, rather, say, or we're on patent, we're about to launch. And um, this scrappy 50-person company ends up winning a $250 million a year piece of business. One of the most lopsided agency wins in history. What does that and, mean, 250 million a year? Is that an ad spend or the actual project value, like what they'd pay you? Both. It's both. Okay. Uh, I, I don't remember you know, uh, what the pie chart differences were, um, but suffice to say, we were about 500 people too small for that project. <laughs> yeah. And name the company again, sorry. It was called Eli Lilly. Uh, Lilly should still be around, assuming they haven't been bought up and merged by somebody <laughs> else. Uh, th their product at the time, that was a huge breakout for them, was Prozac. Um, and since then they've had a you know, number of interesting drugs, but, um, that one, that one was a game changer for us. Um, because all of a sudden we went from this tiny little agency to, you know, what would then become a 700 plus person company, uh, all within the next four years, maybe. Um, so, so pulling that apart real quick, cause there's some names here I want to get right. When did you rebrand NGDA as blue diesel? NGDA was a really dumb name. Um, and, and there was, there was a history, uh, a short answer, by the way, is probably in 98 or so, something like that. 98, yep. Um, but, uh, NGDA was just a stupid name. Nobody could remember it, pronounce it, including our staff. And, uh, and we knew we had to do something new. So, uh, I came up with this idea of blue diesel. Everybody was coming up with cool names for their companies like Razorfish. And I wanted a cool name for our company and, uh, and it stuck and actually it turned out to be really good. That said, agency names do not last long. Uh, and so GSW, Blue Diesel, NGDA, and every incarnation thereafter has since then been deprecated in favor of something else, which is yep. to say, I don't actually know what the name of the company is anymore, which is pretty yep. funny. And, and so uh, again, just to paint the picture, so you, you are both running it. Now, did you have any other co-founders with NGDA or did you own 100% at the beginning? I own 100%. Okay, got it. So now on the cap table, it's basically you and Blaine you, or you GSW, yep. right? His, invest, yeah. his investment. Yep. As a founder building us, I imagine, you know, so he was two or three years older than you. You maybe looked up to him a little bit there because his agency was 50 people, probably had more bookings than you. But you also had to be wondering, hey, this guy owns 50% of my company, but I don't own any percent of like of, of GSW. And so he's doing two things. Like I'm sort of working for him though over here. How, like how did that all work? When did Blaine's attention focus like more towards you or both or how did it all come together? You know, uh, it was actually really easy to work with him. I know it's going to sound odd. I think we met like two or three times a year uh, and just gave updates. It's like, are you doing your part? Yes. Are you doing your part? Yes. And just kind of ran with it. Um, I was on what was essentially the board of, uh, of the parent company, which, which came, became rebranded as Incord. Um, and I think GSW was rebranded as Incord? Incord became essentially a holding company to okay. hold uh, GSW, Blue Diesel, and what became, I think, five or six other agencies that we bought. I see. And so there was me and five people, you know, may have expanded a little bit um, throughout that whole period, um, overseeing kind of what would become in court. I see. So, so when did, um, when did Blue Diesel officially become part of Incord, or, or was it just the 50% that GSW had already purchased is the portion that Incord owned? And then you became CEO of Incord, the holding company. Um, so Blaine became CEO of Incord. Somebody else became CEO of uh, GSW, and I was always CEO of Blue Diesel. 
Oh, I see. Interesting. Okay. We, we ran pretty independently. Yep. Okay. Okay. So take us forward. So, what, you know, Eli Lilly was a massive win for you guys. Did it pan out like you expected or did things blow up and crash and burn? It went amazing. In fact, I think they're still a client, which is hard to believe. But, but you got to understand, like, at a time like that, in the professional services business that we are in, there's no way to fake it. Like, there's no way to get, like, you know, VC money to, like, scale a professional services company. Some folks tried. Um, there's, you, just, you just have to do the work and send the billings and hope to collect, right? And so to scale a company that fast um, was very unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, you know, I'm, as we're moving into this, I'm 25, 26, 27 myself. Um, I have no sense for how big of an accomplishment this is, right? This is just all happening so fast. And I had no other experience. So in my mind, the only professional experience I had in my 20s as an adult um, was this rocket ship. And I think the reason I say that is because often early in our careers when we do really well, it's really hard to calibrate and understand how valuable or how fortunate being that young and that successful is. I only understood about half of it. Half of me was like, well, hey, I was a poor kid who came into this. I'd never expected this to happen. And the other half of me was like, well, maybe this is just how good I am and this is how all my stuff's going to happen. And again, mm-hmm. that's, that's cocky and arrogant. I just didn't know any better. And, and yep. uh, I think that happens a lot, especially now. So between, between the merger in 1997, where GSW you know, paid call more than a million bucks by 50% of your original company, which you were the sole founder of, you guys merged, you get this big $250 million contract from Eli Lilly, your business model is combined, you're managing an amount of ad spend, which we're calling billings, plus I imagine there's some project fees on the side that are higher margin for you guys. What did you grow the, do you remember what you grew like in, in your best year, how much ad dollars were flowing through your platform, you were managing them? Uh, a little over 700 million. Okay, got it. And how much of that was, did you actually get to spend versus keep? You know, people today talk about ad tax all the time, but I'm oh, curious yeah, what yeah. that looked like so, for you. Again, I guess like 20 years ago, so I'm trying to think back, but um, I would say rough numbers, and I could be a little bit off, but not a lot of bit off, is we were probably doing about 150 to 175 million in real money Yep. Um, on, on a, a net income of about 25 million. Yep. 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 Okay. And what does that mean for an agency back then to have a net income of twenty five million? I just have no context. Was it was like good, bad, ugly? It's 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 great. You just don't get any of it. Um, when you're a growing business and you're self funded, um, you get you, you get the taxes on it. You just often don't get to take it home because you yep. need that working capital in order to hire more people. Agencies are a really shitty business model. Um, it's the easiest business to get into and the hardest business to get out of, because once you're in it and once you have that much infrastructure. We had $10 million a month worth of payroll. Think of what it takes to keep that beast alive. Every month, every year, the the chains reset and you have to start all over again, pitching new clients. You're going to lose some some clients. You're going to gain some clients, but you constantly have to feed that beast. Yeah, spoiler guys, Will's now running a SaaS company. We'll get to that in a bit. I hate a recurring it. revenue, stacking yes. revenue. Don't yes. start from zero every month to SaaS company. <laughs> Everyone can go to sleep for a month and we'll still get paid. Right? There you go. In the, in the agency business, you're constantly you know, under the microscope of the client, uh, appropriately so, just to be clear. Um, yeah. And you're constantly, constantly going to bed worried that that client that loved you last year is going to fire you this year. Um, and it happens all the time. Um, and for us, you know, as we got bigger, I got more anxious, not more happy. As we got bigger, um, I saw 
this bigger and bigger kind of cloud, right, uh, form over us. And, and maybe Blaine did too. I can't speak for him, but uh, I think uh, I knew I wanted to get away from it. Um, mm-hmm. It was making me very anxious and very unhappy. Did you, were you able at any point to negotiate with Blaine and, and actually get equity in the parent company or was your stake, I mean, financially, right? Just the, the sort of the 49, 50% in Blue Diesel. Yeah. You know, it was, and, and I never wanted anything else. I never even asked. Um, no. In fact, I, I sort of remember a conversation where, where they had offered me to like convert some, some equity to the bigger company. And I guess the way I looked at it was, and I, and I still feel this way this, to this day with my own companies, I only really want to invest in or have a stake in what I can control. Yeah. Right. So I, I, at, my, at, at the time, and maybe I would have made more money. I, I don't think so. But um, uh, at the time, I, I distinctly remember thinking, I don't know what you guys are doing with those other agencies. I'm on the board. I can see it at a bird's eye view, but you know, I'm not in there every day. But I know exactly what my team is doing. And yeah. uh, I like to keep all of my outcome tied to my performance. So just to be clear too, in terms of role, so you were not the CEO of Incord. You are a board member at Incord. Blaine was CEO at Incord and you were CEO at Blue Diesel or GSW. Right. Incord wasn't really anything but a holding company. You know, I see. If, I if see. you were to like cut out staff, they had like 12 people. I see. Okay. So just to summarize, because then we're about to get into a, a new part of your life, right? So mm-hmm. between sort of 1997 and 1998, sort of 2000, you guys grow the business to $700 million in top line bookings as an agency of which there's about $150 million of gross revenue. And then after you pay your expenses, you have about 25 million net hitting the bottom line, which you're reinvesting to drive growth. How right. long did you stay active in this company? When, when did it end? Well, it sold in 2001, 2002. Um, it sold to a guy named Dan Snyder who owned the Washington Redskins and had made an ungodly amount of money, uh, which is why he owns the Redskins, uh, in, um, uh, in the, in a, I think a pharmaceutical sales, uh, outsource sales organization or something. I can't even remember anymore. Um, but in this is, this is a public record. It sold for a little over 300 million in cash. In 2002. Uh, which yeah. Which is about two X our top line of, of real bookings, real bookings yeah. being like the project based bookings. Yep. So, yep. so it was a great outcome. And, and so, I mean, paint this picture a bit for me and you have to just, I have to apologize for prying, but again, I think these early moments where founders generate some cash is what allows them to go take like the second and third swing at bat. And that's where they really start to go for and swing for fences, hit home runs. So you had a bit of a cash advance, you know, event back in 1997 when obviously Blaine came in and bought for a million bucks. I assume you took some of that off the table, but it sounds like this potentially the sale to Dan Snyder was also a cash event for you. Can you explain how that worked to the extent you can? Uh, I can't, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> that's all sealed. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but l- let me give you the insight that I can give you. Um, number one, what, what gave me incentive from that point on wasn't having some cash. Uh, I know a lot of people believe that. Um, but I, th- I think there's, there's a lot missing that a lot of folks don't understand. Um, th- there's two versions of having cash. One version is having enough that you feel safe. If, if, if shit hits the fan, you can absorb that right? And I think uh, that's not nearly as much money as people think it is, but it's, it's helpful to have. The second is the kind of money where you can just place bets and be okay if you lose. Very mm-hmm. few people ever have that much, that kind of cash. Um, my incentives weren't coming uh, from having some money that I could place bets and lose from. My incentive was coming in a totally different place. I felt like this was an awesome outcome. I was really proud of what we built. And I felt like unless I could do it again, that I was a one-time hit, that I was a fraud, that mm-hmm. I just happened to be lucky. 
I was in the right place at the right time, and, uh, and I have to do it again. This is a completely unwarranted, idiotic feeling that most founders have mm-hmm. uh, in my experience, and, and, I, and I was certainly one of them. And so my passion, sorry, uh, my passion to go want to do more things had nothing to do with having some cash. It had mm-hmm. everything to do with a massive amount of insecurity. Insecurity plus cash is more dangerous. So a lot of people say follow your passion, but they forget the part that you have to try and align passion with money. Otherwise, you're going to be broken, have no impact, right? So like, yeah. I get what you're saying, but there's there has to be like two pieces to the puzzle. I get the insecurity and, and, and thanks for that. But I mean, for, for someone that might be listening right now, that's a young entrepreneur, like exactly where you were in 28. They have a mentor they've teamed up with in terms of business. Maybe they're part of a holding company to some degree. I mean, it's, it's not clear. I mean, if you essentially own a part of a holding company and you own no equity in the holding company and the holding company sells, I mean, did you have to negotiate in 2002 what you personally would actually make in terms of upside on that sale or was it already sort of crystal clear? It's built into the cap table. And unlike a really complicated VC investment cap table, um, each of the holders just gets their pro rata. There's no... Um, there's oh, no I see. preferences or anything else. Like, you don't have like, like a weird outcome. Like it's pretty straightforward. I see. So just again, we're not going to talk about specifically, but hypothetically, there's a holding company. If there are three things in the holding company, you basically just split up how that's owned. So if, again, if there's three, you own Super 50, simple. you own 50% of one of the thirds. And that's an easy way to sort of backtrack. You bet. I see. Interesting. Okay. When did you, so I assume you didn't stick on for an earn out when, when Dan Snyder's running the company, right? Did you leave then? Yeah, I was more than ready to go. Do you like Dan? I don't even know him. Okay, uh, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, like I, was, I was pretty much gone. Um, I, I, I heard he's uh, tough to be in a room with, but you know, who knows? So I, grew up in D, I'm, I grew up in DC, so I'm a huge, what do I even call them? I'm a huge, the Washington football team fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, and, I was and, reticent to call them the Redskins, but I was using <laughs> throwback terms. Yep, yep. Okay, so very good. So what were you thinking about in 2002? What did you do with your life? Okay, so at that point, a few things were really important to me. The first thing was I wanted to be able to show that I could do it again. Um, and again, a rational, silly, kind of immature uh, feeling that I had. Entrepreneurs have it all the time, and I always try to coach them out of it. Um, and so, but the other thing I was seeing that not a lot of other people were seeing was that we were building a lot of uh, uh, tech and you know, and websites and whatever for our clients. But every time it happened, every time we sold a client, it was me going in there explaining how to convert their business idea into something that would be you know usable on the web. And then going back and building it and making them money. Of course, we got paid for that. But I started to think about it and I'm like, I'm the one that understands how the internet works. I'm the, under- the one that understands how to build all this technology. What do I need clients for? And so I said, why don't I just build this stuff for myself? I've got a million ideas for a million companies. Um, why have clients uh, get you know, in, into the mix? Why don't I just do this stuff myself? So I started what was essentially an incubator which sounds trite now because there's been a million incubators, but other than I think Bill Gross with Idealab back then, which was a whole other thing, like way more successful than I would have ever done, um, that wasn't a thing. Uh, Y Combinator wouldn't come, come along for years after and then all the people that copied them. Um, so um, my idea was to build a studio to take all of my ideas and have the same team work on them. And so... Over the, the, the ensuing, I'm trying to get my dates right, call it eight years, give or take, uh, we worked on a whole bunch of different ideas. Somewhere along the way, a few years into it, 
up until this point, I'm funding each of these ideas myself. And these are all SaaS companies. Um, and this new thing had just been introduced to the market called performance advertising. Uh, pay-per-click that uh, actually, funny I mentioned him, uh, Bill Gross invented, uh, sold it to Yahoo and then Google stole, um, uh, was a new thing. So you could all of a sudden, for the first time, spend money hundreds of dollars at a time to see if things worked and then put gas on them. Up until then, you couldn't do it. There was affiliate marketing, which is kind of an interesting thing now, but it was actually a big thing back then, but also performance-based. And so all of a sudden, you could build these ideas, do customer acquisition for thousands of dollars, and then if it worked, pour more gas on it. Up until that point, that never existed. You had to spend huge amounts of money on servers and, and, uh, and banner ads and all this stuff that was incredibly uh, inefficient and then hope that massive bet paid off. Mm-hmm. So I was at kind of the dawn of, of building companies that could scale on small amounts of dollars. And I thought that was a big thing. And I wanted to build as many as possible. And so between 2002 and call 2004, the first two years of the incubator, I mean, how, what kind of investment are we talking about? How much of your own cash do you put behind this thing? Uh, boy, um, I'm trying to think back. Um, I would say, like I'm thinking in one company, I put like a quarter million bucks Another one which, I probably which put one was that? thousand. Um, it was a company called Gotcast. Uh, okay. We actually did casting for uh, television on the internet. <laughs> and Still was, true to your theater roots. It, yeah, it was a total fluke, but that's actually what brought me to Los Angeles, which kind of like put me in California for the last 10 years. Um, a guy that worked with me on another one of my startups uh, went to Los Angeles, became a talent agent out there. I'm out there having a cocktail with him in LA and we're just talking. And he said, yeah, man, um, I'm getting uh, put in charge of this new department that we're spitting up and it's called unscripted television and it's for shows that don't actually have like a traditional script. Which, which firm was he with WME, CAA, which, which talent agency? Uh, he was at the time with Abrams Artist Agency. Yep. I don't know who he's with now. Yep. Um, and uh, it was, again, it was what was going to become reality television. And uh, so I was like, listen, man, why don't you just look for all those people uh, online? You know, why bother trying to like find them, you know, through phone calls and stuff like that? And he said, like, how are we going to do that? And I said, well, there's this new thing coming up called MySpace. And a lot of people are kind of trying to be famous on it. And I think we could kind of tag into that and and build it up. So we ended up building uh, GotCast to to do casting for television as one of the many companies we were kind of incubating and spinning out. Was that the most you spent money on? No, um, while we were doing that, I had uh, the next idea for the next company was a company called affordit.com. And affordit allowed you to buy stuff using weekly payments. It was a great idea. In fact, uh, a firm is about to go public. Like I just I was saw a say, this, Max would pitch himself exactly like it, this. You were just was early. Literally a firm. <laughs> yeah. You, you, were just, you were just early. 10 years too early. 10 years too early. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but when I was building affordit and starting to kind of put that together, I was putting my own cash into it. Um, I'd met some guys in LA at the very, very early kind of dawn of their um, kind of what became the internet crew out there. And uh, a lot of the guys that are kind of, you know, uh, been doing it for a long time, like the OGs now had just gotten there. And so guys like Mike Jones, who runs science, Mark Suster, who had just gotten there that um, is, you know, running um, up front, up front. Yep. Um, had, had all put money into my company. And it was the yep. first time I'd ever taken on outside capital. That was 600 can to afford it, right? Uh, it was maybe closer to 800 K. I know okay. founders fund was in the deal. Um, anyway, 
But that was the first time in my life that people that weren't me were writing checks. An interesting thing, interesting thing happens when you start bearing all these children that are these startup companies, whether they're going good or bad, they need lots of money. And when you're doing one or two, it just doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But when you get up to three, four, five, it's a really big deal and mm-hmm. cash is a big issue. And the problem is you never know in those formative stages whether or not putting more cash in is a good idea or a bad idea. You're just throwing cash at it. Usually it doesn't come back. Um, and I was starting to do the math and realize that this thing doesn't scale very well. Like if I just keep doing these and I just keep ripping through my, my bank account um, by myself, good or bad, it's not going to end well. If they go good, I'm not going to have enough capital. If they go bad, I'm going to lose all my money. And so I started to look for equity partners. Um, and that's where I started to really get involved in, in a lot of fundraising. And then this, I think, believe eventually led to Go Big Network, which feels like it's an early version of what Fundable is today. So I want to pull that thread. Yeah, I want to pull that thread in a second. But real quick, your, your boy, your big advisor, Blaine, did you convince him to go to LA with you? What happened to him? No, uh, Blaine made a, made a bunch of cash. Plus, he had the family's fund. I mentioned you know, at the, the top of the discussion that his dad started Cardinal Health, which I don't even know what the market cap is, some gazillion billion dollars. Um, and so the family has a tremendous amount of familial wealth. Um, and they have a whole fund that they were managing, like a PE fund, um, family office. And so he went, I think he still does that today. I, I just talked to him a couple of days ago about something else. But um, uh, that's, I mean, that's a huge endeavor. And he believe, I believe he did he, he so he stayed with Incord and Dan after the acquisition. Is that right? He did. Um, and he went back and forth. The company got bought by private equity twice. Um, Blaine got, I think, let go at some point, you know, as private equity companies do. I'm sure he didn't do anything wrong, it's just the nature of the transactions. Um, and you know, it's I don't think he's been there for at least five years, but who knows? Yep, yep, yep. I, mean, I just know 2005, that company was doing 2.5 billion in annual revenue, 3.8 billion valuation. He was CEO at the point, and then the private equity folks got involved. Okay, so Blaine is sort of out of the out yeah. of the picture at this point. You're playing around with new startup ideas. So which one, you know, when you look today at the five companies you have under startups.com, which one of the sort of those five seeds what was that first success, you know, starting in 2002 when you launched the incubator in the first place? Well, the first one I was working on uh, wasn't my idea. Uh, it was a company called swapalease.com. Okay. Um, and what I loved about it um, was it was a really simple concept that allowed people to get in and out of car leases uh, online. And uh, it's actually a huge market um, and a really interesting business. But back then, it was way ahead of its time. Um, yeah, but, and this is like Shift today and Toro, these kind of companies play in the space. You bet, you bet. Yeah. Um, and it was started by a, a family office uh, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, that owned a bunch of car dealerships, so they were native to it. Uh, but they didn't understand you know, how to build an internet company. They'd gotten a, a little bit of a start, but didn't understand how to scale it. And I think it was doing maybe $20,000 of revenue at the time, which was a lot considering the time. Uh, but I was building this incubator, and I jumped on board, became CEO, and scaled it. Now, here's what happened. Within a couple years, um, they got to about $3 million of revenue on about a million dollars of EBITDA. Okay. And I remember thinking to myself, uh, what if I could do this 10, 20, 30 more times? What if nowadays in this new world, even base hits are a home run, right? You know, from a cash flow standpoint. And so I really, really got excited about this idea of building all of these SaaS companies and building an entire portfolio and doing things like making sure that every time we built a commerce engine or anything else like that, We'd build one, but then be able to use it across all of the different uh, portfolio companies. And to some degree, that worked. 
It was also back in a time where you had to build everything from scratch, whereas now there's so much off-the-self stuff it doesn't have the same advantage. Um, but even using the same people, agency style, to do media buying across all the different products, right? We just had this really efficient uh, method of spinning stuff up. And it started working. Um, Go Big Network. Measured, measured by what? Uh, How did you know profit. it was working? Profit. I, I'm saying like, it started to make real money. Swap a lease or other ideas? Uh, the other ideas too. And so, okay. Which um, were what? Just categorize them at this point. What other names? Just list them real quick. What are the other ideas yeah, you sure. want? Yeah, sure. So uh, Swap Lease was the first. Um, uh, Go Big Network was the second. And that was essentially the precursor to Fundable. Um, uh, after that, we did one called bizplan.com, which actually became what is now bizplan on our, our startups.com site. Mm-hmm. Um, we did another called Gotcast. We did Afford It. We did unsubscribe.com, which is a really cool company. Um, and then after that was startups.com. I think there were some in the middle that kind of you know, uh, never got out of the nest, uh, but those were ones that started to get some level of traction and, and had you know, dedicated staff. Unsubscribe, I think you guys raised 2.1 million there. Was that sort of a soft landing or was that a, was that a, a good cash event? We didn't really make much off that. Um, yeah. That was just, that was interesting learning. That was me and Jamie Siminoff who started Ring. And um, in, it was an idea I had for a long time. Jamie and another guy, Josh, uh, wanted to go in and start it. But I was busy doing too many other things. And we raised some money. Um, and we just, J- Jamie was leading it, doing as much as he could. Um, obviously, he's a great CEO. Look what he did with Ring. Um, but it just couldn't really get escape velocity. And then we ended up selling it to a company called Trusted Idea. And I don't even know if they're around anymore. Yep. Okay. So, so let's keep mo- sort of moving forward here. Um, it's 2000, uh, again, 2002, you start getting these ideas going. You have some success, 2004, 2005. You, where does VirtuCon Ventures come into play and what's that do? VirtuCon Ventures was essentially what I renamed um, NGDA uh, okay. back from 95 to be my holding company. Um, in all of these things. So VirtuCon Ventures has really just been uh, my holding company entity for everything that I own. I see. Interesting. Okay. And then, and then, so walk us through, let's sort of fast forward today because there's a lot of stuff. You're testing a ton during these next 10 years, testing new ideas, throwing stuff against the wall. Let's, let's fast forward now to like what stuck. So what, what are the brands under startups.com today? Okay. So startups.com, as I mentioned, just kind of give it context. Uh, carries people from the idea stage all the way through launch. So there's a lot of part, uh, points people get stuck. Um, so right now we've got startups.com, but within that we've got uh, bizplan.com, which is a business planning tool, as you might imagine. We've got fundable.com, which allows people to uh, raise capital. We've got um, uh, launchrock.com, which allows people to kind of uh, acquire their early customers. We've got Clarity.fm, which is a community of over 20,000 mentors that we use to uh, connect people and kind of help them uh, through the process and coach them. And we've got Zirtual.com, which allows people to get an extra pair of hands on their team for a few hundred dollars to get all the stuff done that they can't possibly get done. And so of these five brands, I want to make sure to do my research right here, BizPlan and Fundable were the ones that were organically grown. The other three were acquisitions. Is that accurate? Correct. Yep. Okay, so let's start with with LaunchRock, right? So, so they raised, they, they launched in 2011, uh, I believe, and they raised about 800K. There were four founders there. Where did you start to get involved with that crew? Um, so something happened. In the early days of startups.com, when we only had a couple properties, Fundable being kind of like the preeminent one that we were really pushing on, because circa 2012, crowdfunding was a really big deal. Yep. Um, we saw something that a lot of other people didn't see, 
which was we didn't think crowdfunding was going to pan out the way everybody thought it would. Um, at the time, Kickstarter had just done their first million dollar raise. I mean, crowdfunding was like everything. But we started to have this kind of um, anti-view where we were saying, you know what? This sounds awesome and I love the hype and you're reading about it every other articles about crowdfunding, but I don't see more people uh, coming up with more good ideas to get funded. And I don't see more people getting created as investors. I don't think that's going to be enough just to do that as a as sole business. So why did you believe that, by the way? I mean, you were close to this point, I believe, to Anish Chopra, who's the CTO of the, the country. You guys were winning all kinds of awards for top 100 entrepreneurs in the world, recognized by the White House. I mean, yep. you, you had a sort of an inside track to where legislation was going. Why didn't you believe it was going to happen? Because it, ultimately um, it did. You know, one of the tricky things about kind of running the, the course in the life that I've had is I've had to simultaneously be the world's biggest optimist and the biggest cynic at the same time. Right. And so part of me is like, yes, anything can happen. And the other part of me is like, yeah, but it won't. <laughs> and so I've got to kind of, uh, you know, always look at those two sides. Um, I was so excited about the promise of crowdfunding, but I was also very closely looking at the actual um, outcomes. And I said, look, Pebble Watch is cool, but I don't, I don't see enough Pebble Watches. And I don't think there's enough people that are, are going to be willing to fund 20 of those for that to sustain. And yep. so it sounds cool, but I don't see the numbers adding up. And it, it's not that we didn't believe in crowdfunding. We just didn't see the growth arc that was going to be kind of our only ship to tie to. Also, we really, you know, kind of going into this realized that people need help with lots of stuff, which is kind of where we were going with biz plan and things like that. But what we ran into per your question about LaunchRock is we knew that in order to have a suite of products that were going to be well-developed, have existing market potential and, um, in momentum, we couldn't possibly build all of those. I mean, think about it, like how many people and how much focus and how much money it would take. So we started looking at doing acquisitions. At the time, I moved to San Francisco, and uh, and at I started. The time was twenty thirteen. Yeah, probably 2013, 2014, If you know, if my numbers are right, and uh, I went there specifically to scout out companies to buy, and we looked at. I mean, I probably talked to hundreds of founders, but we looked at uh, 40 companies closely. In other words, we did our diligence on 40 companies and we ended up acquiring six. Uh, a few of the other ones that aren't really part of, part of our portfolio in a meaningful way are like Zana, which is where all our video content came from, Killer Startups, which was a lot of our just regular content that kind of uh, got phased out. Um, there might be another, I might be missing one. So many acquisitions, but... Uh, so why was, I mean, buying a, one of these, like, especially with 800,000 raise, they've got VCs sitting on their board going, don't sell to anybody, go for broke. So the fact that you're able to pull these things off, you had to have found the founders at a critique moment or had some specific leverage point, or there has to be a forcing function for these deals to happen. What was that with LaunchRock? Because Vivo launched with them, Instacart launched with them. I mean, they had some traction. Yeah, uh, they did. And it was a great company. We launched with them. I mean, so mm -hmm. you know, we're definitely familiar with the product. Um, our, our, our pitch was the same for every single one of those founders. What we're going to build collectively has more total addressable market than what you could ever do individually. You know, uh, talking to Jameson, the, the, the founder of LaunchRock, I said, Jameson, um, no matter how many sites you launch off of LaunchRock, you'll never be more than a company that just launches websites. We want to be a company that launches startups, launches the entire company, carries through them with that entire journey to the extent that we can. Um, Tying all those boats together has a much greater TAM, more LTV, et cetera. Um, and, and that also proved to be true, by the way. But we can also charge more for it. I mean, everything is better if we start to tie these things together, if we do it in a smart, deliberate way. And that, mm -hmm. was, that and, was really the impetus. 
And do you have a sort of formula you like to follow? Was it, was it, you know, do you never do cash? It's always stock or you never do stock. It's always cash or it's always a blend or like, what is your thesis for like the perfect deal? Uh, I would, I would love to say it was consistent, but in some of those deals we paid all cash and some of those deals we did a hybrid. Um, and I would say this, um, when you're paying cash, you feel so beat up because you know, it's hitting your cash position and you feel like, man, if I could just pay some equity, it would just, you know, really, uh, settle some of the bruising right now. But there is something wonderful about paying cash and, and knowing that you didn't have any residual to it. You know, uh, I, I can't go into all the details, you know, which companies take the cash versus stock, but a couple of them we paid all cash for. And, uh, and while it hurt us at the time, looking back, I'm so glad I did it because mm. you also don't want to be making essentially uh, rent payments back to some company that you bought five years ago and be making those payments for the rest of your life. Okay, so that's Launch Rock 2014. Uh, let's move forward to Clarity FM, all right? Dan Martell created Clarity and go on there and get expert calls done. W mm -hmm. Explain to me today sort of how that business model works because I would argue this is one of the first marketplace models and this theme of a marketplace model repeats itself throughout your portfolio. So I want to build on that. So explain how Clarity yeah. works. Yeah, so Clarity's great. Um, Clarity allows any expert uh, on, you'd be an expert on, you know, whatever you want to be a domain expert on. Um, to hop on the site, list themselves on the site, could be an SEO expert, a legal expert, et cetera, and allow other folks to book you for calls um, to talk about your, um, your expertise. And as you can imagine, entrepreneurs have a million questions on a million topics. So Dan had created the critical mass of, of, of all the, the experts. I think I did over 10,000 know, by the time we acquired the company. Um, and a lot of the experts were using it not just to, to talk to startups, but to talk to their own customers as well. And the, the problem it really solves, not just access to, um, uh, to experts, but on the flip side for experts, and the reason a lot of people use it, is just to create a little bit of friction for their time, right? They just, like the experts like to say, look, I love helping people, but like only so many people can, you know, email me saying, I want to pick your brain. I'd rather have just a little bit of friction so that, um, when someone needs to use my time, there's a little bit of cost attached to it. Funny side note, a lot of the money that gets collected on Clarity actually goes to charity. Yep. So nobody's really getting rich necessarily doing their Clarity calls. You know, they make some good money. Um, most people want to be helpful, but they just want to make sure they don't, their time doesn't get abused. And so help us understand sort of, you know, how many folks are using this. In 2019, how many experts, I guess, did you, you pay at least a dollar to or donate a dollar, at least a dollar to their charity? Uh, I should know that, but I don't. Uh, is can you mean range? Like, are we talking a thousand or ten thousand or a hundred thousand? Uh, well, there's only twenty thousand experts on the platform. Okay. Um, so I, I obviously they didn't all get paid. Um, yep. I, I couldn't give you a, a exact number, and I wouldn't want to guess. Okay, that's fine. What is the when when experts are pricing their time? Do you have a sense of what sort of the average it, per minute cost is? Yeah, you know, um, it does vary just because nobody really knows. Um, a lot of what I see on there is about three to five dollars a minute. Okay. No one's trying to like put the entrepreneur over a barrel. You know what it does better than anything else like that? It makes the calls really short because the moment people know the meter is running, um, they get to the point. You know, they try to extract as much value as they can in the shortest period of time, which makes every clarity call I've ever been on the most efficient call I've ever had. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love it. I, you know, truth be told, I actually usually refund people's money just because I own the, the, the product. I'm not trying to get yeah. rich off of it. Um, but I love the efficiency. It always leads to a good use of my time. 
Yep. Well, why did you buy it? I mean, how, you know, it couldn't have been cheap. They had raised 2.7 million bucks. Dan has given, gave you many interviews around the time that said it was growing really fast, but he really liked you. Right. So yep. it's not like you didn't pay a bunch of money for this thing and then not figure out how to monetize it. How do you make money off this thing? Um, well, the site was already making money. We knew we could scale it more. Again, it goes back to the, the same premise, which is individually clear, clarity has only got so much reach and it's only got so much total addressable market. But within our world, uh, by connecting it, the same people that are going to sign up for LaunchRock are going to need clarity services because they're going to need help with their customer acquisition. Um, the same people that sign up for BizPlan are building a BizPlan. They're going to need clarity people and they're eventually going to launch. They're going to need the LaunchRock uh, product. The idea is that by tying all of these together, we could expand LTV, but again, also expand the total addressable market across all the products. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you decreased your margin a bit because Martel said in a 2012 interview that clarity kept 30% of fees. That was obviously pre-acquisition, but then Nick Lobert... Nick Loper did a big write about how he loves the platform. He makes some side money and he said that Clarity only takes 15% now. So you're letting mm-hmm. creators, you're letting experts keep more. Uh, so, you, you know, and maybe you do that. I don't know. Why did you do that? Well, um, ultimately, all that matters is that the experts are happy. Um, and even within that 15, 15%, we're also paying the processing fees. So we pay another 3% in processing fees and then marketing fees, administration fees, et cetera. It's not a huge margin product, but it's actually one of our best products, like one of our most beloved products, mm-hmm. because the product itself is just so good. And I won't mm-hmm. say that about everything we have, and I'm, you know, I'm just like universally like, like hype everything up, but Clarity is just freaking great. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, look at the reviews on there. They're incredible. Uh, everyone just knows exactly what they're supposed to be doing on there. It's rare. Mm-hmm. How, and so what's the key metric for you there? Like, is it money donated to charity each month? Is it number of call minutes? Like, what's the success metric? Um, I, I wouldn't say any of those things. I mean, most of it's the feedback rating. Uh, the, the, the average feedback rating is like four and a half stars out of five stars. I mean, it's, it's crazy high. It's mm-hmm. so rare that we get negative feedback on clarity. It can happen. You're talking about humans, you know, two people call and they just, you know, it doesn't go right. Uh, but it's so rare on clarity. Mm-hmm. But how, I mean, how do you keep everyone engaged? And I mean, like specifically, so in 2014, uh, you know, there's 150,000 calls done via the platform across 17,414 entrepreneurs. You just told me there was about 20,000 active in 2019 on the platform, which means you only added about 2,600 new entrepreneurs over a five-year span since the acquisition. That's not a ton. Uh, well, uh, that also has us re- removing a lot of folks that are inactive. Okay, got so it. Yeah. yeah. So that, um, okay, so that was the second part of my question is how do you measure active? Well, uh, if they haven't logged in in a certain period of time, if they haven't taken any calls, you know, a lot of people that, that log in don't take any calls. That's a challenge because if they log in, they don't take any calls. And then somebody, you know, next year tries to ring them up for a call. And we've got a bunch of, of basically de- dead folks on the uh, system is a huge problem. And so Clarity doesn't win by having more experts. Like we have 20,000. We're long past the point where we have saturation in almost every category. Our issue now is the quality. Right. So, um, are those folks, uh, attacking enough quality? The number of people we had would be a problem if the demand were so high that it saturated more than we have, but it hasn't Mm -hmm. yet. Yeah. I mean, that's what this is like the classic chicken egg with marketplaces. And the nice thing about clarity is you don't have to start from zero. You essentially bought something that was already working. And the question is how do you continue to drive super active people that love the platform? And so like I went in actually yesterday and booked time. I think it was like at six bucks a minute with Aaron Jin. 
uh, growth hacker. So it'll, it's right. gonna cost me 65 bucks. I'm waiting for his response to my calendar request. But like, as I was clicking through profiles to like run a test like this, a lot of the reviews, they say like reviewed in 2017. And there's like, there's none happening in 2020. And so that's what I'm trying to, and, and even like when you look at Dan's profile, it's clear his price was much cheaper a few years ago to juice his reviews. And yeah, now it's yeah, like yeah. ridiculous. You can't book him because it's five grand an hour. He probably did it on purpose. So it's like, how do you measure? You want active calls taking place, not a signaling good for experts. Um, well, we do want active calls. I mean, that, that's ultimately uh, the, the, the growth model of the business. However, um, who's going to be the most active is a reflection of their time. You know, mm-hmm. uh, entrepreneur just comes off, sells his company. Um, he may be really active on the platform for, for five months and then start something else and can't get active again on it. So we've got to prune people on a regular basis to figure out who's active and, you know, who's the, the best use at the time. And the one thing we found is that the folks that are active tend to be really active, uh, especially for whenever their focus area is. And so we kind of got to bubble them to the top. Yeah. Okay. And last question here on clarity. When you're thinking about, I mean, you have to think about obviously the math, you're paying something, you got to figure out how to get a return. Yes, it feels good. Yes, it fits the brand. Yes, it fits your vision. But, but what were the, I mean, did you put sort of a pro form together and say, okay, clarity has this many experts, this many entrepreneurs. I think this many are going to buy launch rock. Like here's what our upsell rate's going to be. And if so, how did the kind of upsell and the cross product play pan out? We didn't have cross product at the time. Um, at the time we were still in the process of kind of getting the products on and trying to fulfill our thesis of would we be able to buy enough products to build kind of this, you know, this master platform. And so any, any guesses we would have made back then would have been totally guesses. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it was just taking a look at how much had Dan raised. Cause we knew we had to pay back the investors. We looked at, um, how much could clarity make, you know, you kind of start doing your A, B and C scenarios of what the company could be. Um, and start to say, hey, you know, A is ridiculous. It'll never get there. You know, C is, is too Wait, low. hold on. What was your ridiculous number for clarity? Come on. I, I have no idea. Um, you don't remember what? Okay. <laughs> no, I, I, not at all. Um, and, uh, but I remember, you know, Dan and I, we went back and forth a little, but I think because Dan and I had known each other for a long time, it wasn't a very trying negotiation. More of it was, hey, we want to make sure that you feel good about the sale, but we also want to make sure that we, we're not left holding the bag. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, again, as we're trying to do these scenarios, if Dan's saying, look, this thing could do easily do a hundred million, I'm like, Dan, anything could easily do a hundred million, but you have to actually do a hundred million. Right. So yeah. like, here's worst case, if we did everything wrong, what I think it would st- let's start there and kind of work up from there. Um, which is usually what I do with all these acquisitions and say like, what's, what's the worst case and let's build from there. Well, and look, I mean, it wasn't just Dan, there was 3 million of equity on the cap table. So right. there's no way unless there was something that he never gave an interview about, unless a disaster was happening internally, he's not selling for anything less than 3 million because of the liquidation preference. So you paid at least six, 7 million in total deal price for this thing. He also was planning on raising more money. Um, okay. So, so we were at a point where it was like, do I sell it or raise more money? And Dan's thing at the time was he had some ideas of some other things that he wanted to do. And he wasn't sure whether to like invest because if he raised more money, he's, he's on the hook for like another three to five years. Yeah. And he wasn't a hundred percent sure whether he'd want to just kind of take the money and run and let me go figure it out. So he could go do something else, kind of double dip. Did he use the VC term sheet valuation? I'm going to make this up. I'm speculating here. Let's say the VC valuation, he got a 25 million pre-money valuation. Did he use that to try and get you to come up close to 25 million or, or, or like the similar sort of dynamic? I remember even talking about the, the, the pre-money valuation. I remember just us just talking more about the, kind of the, the financial performance of the business. Also, personally, I don't care about VC valuations. So if you, know, if you were to say, hey, this, the VCs say it's worth 
$60 million. I'm like, yeah, it's worth zero to me. <laughs> All right. Speaking about VC, speaking about VC valuations and worth zero to me, uh, founder of virtual went on this week in startups with Jason Calcianis, uh, back in 2015, I believe it was August 7th. And Jason is saying, uh, this is going to be the next unicorn. The company's doing 10 million in top line revenue. You know, amazing, amazing. Three days later, the company's shutting down surprises. You, you're a customer. You right. immediately do the Will, the, the Will Schroeder playbook. Get on the phone, 20 deals, you try and work out a deal. What the hell was going on with virtual? Um, it, that was one of the most unusual deals I've ever seen. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of stuff. I've met this for almost 30 years. Uh, I work with thousands and thousands of founders. Uh, and I mentor an ungodly number of, of companies. Um, I've never seen something like what happened to them. And, and, and whenever the question comes up, uh, the first thing I always you know, kind of think in my head and, and want to make sure I reflect is that uh, Marin, who started the company, who you referenced in the, um, in the interview, uh, started a rocket ship. Um, it hit just a weird, hard right turn that no one saw coming. And it just had to do with a, with a broken financing. It was a financing that was supposed to go through. At the last, 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 last minute, it didn't go through. And they were stuck holding the bag. But, but, um, but it wasn't just, hold on, Will, I want to dive deeper here because I think it's a bigger problem with VC. It wasn't just that. At the same time, she moved about 400 contractors from contract labor to fixed expenses on her personal, I believe, balance sheet, which juices up your headcount costs by about 30%. VCs at a board meeting would say, you should like make these moves, especially if you're, it's going to increase your valuation on the round. And if the round falls through, you're cooked. Would Marin have made the decision to jack up her fixed expenses so much if she felt that next VC round wasn't actually going to happen? Just uh, 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 in all due respect, none of that's true. Uh, it, it was, but by the way, it was, it was the popular narrative that was kind of like uh, pushed out there that it was all about the hard costs, et cetera. Um, let me give that a little more detail because it's one of those things where like uh, when Zirtual like kind of went under overnight, they were like killing it last week and they, they went under the next week. Nobody knew what the hell happened. So people just started guessing at you know, what, what some of the problems were. At the end of the day, the problem was the money didn't get wired to their account. Like uh, I would say there was a separate issue that had nothing to do with them shutting down. That was their economics were broken. Incidentally, um, it, ha it didn't have to do with W2 versus 1099. That's actually mm -hmm. a super easy problem to solve. Um, the, the reason their economics were broken was because there was nobody at the wheel paying attention to utilization. And I'll give you a really, really simple um, calculation. Remember, I came from professional services, so I understood this very well. And you were a customer. People. You were using it. Oh, shit. Well, now I just signed up like a few days earlier. Total flow. Oh, okay. okay. Um, I didn't even get onboarded yet. Um, and so remember, I came from a large professional services organization. And, and when you've got $10 million a month worth of payroll, the utilization of your staff, you know, how many hours uh, that they have available versus how many they bill is all you care about. I mean, you, you track that down to a fraction of, of a decimal point uh, because it's so important. Here's what was broken in their economics. They had 400 people that were full-time billing at 75% capacity. You work that backward, that means they have 100 people billing at 0% capacity. Big problem. Your problem is no one knew it. Um, they just didn't have the the the, the management in, in kind of their their arms around. I mean, Marin said there was no CFO. Th that was a big part of the problem. Um, the company grew so fast, which is incredibly um, 
uh, 100% toward Marin's credit, which you know is very hard to do. Um, but the problem was it grew so fast that there was nobody kind of stepping in saying like, dude, we can't hire 10 more people. We still have to fully utilize the people that we hired last month. But when things are constantly growing up and to the right and everyone's you know, telling you how, what a great job you're doing, there's often not kind of that, um, that, that voice that's saying, hey, maybe we're doing some things wrong here. Mm-hmm. And they were. Well, but can't though, you hedge that by not having them be full-time? I mean, Uber doesn't commit a full-time salary to all their drivers and then get a whack if they can't fill the driver request. They pay per, per driven mile. We have W-2 folks now. It's not a problem. You just don't hire another one until you've fully utilized the ones you've got. It's kind of mm-hmm. that simple, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the economics don't mean anything. You can choose to pay W-2 versus 1099, just like Uber can, any rate you want. It doesn't mean like you have to pay 1099 cheaper or W-2 cheaper. You're the one setting the rates. And so if, if you knew that moving from 1099 to W-2 was going to incur more costs, you would just pay people less. But right? isn't more a question of fixed versus variable? Um, it's well, remember too, like, uh, your utilization is what's floating, not so much your headcount. So, yep. you know, let's say that you have, um, a hundred hours to fill this month, but then 80 hours to fill next month. Well, in that case, sure. Uh, you're, you're going backward and you have 20 less hours, uh, that you can bill. You just don't hire another person, but you're constantly managing that utilization every single day to, to get a feel for where you should be. Every ad agency in the world, every professional services company in the world does this for a living. They just yep. did. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. By the way, uh, this is not a reflection on Mare and this is just what happened with virtual. I, I don't even know. I, what is she, I'm curious what she's doing now, but she basically said a few days after going, it was remarkable when I was doing research for this call and I watched the This Week in Startups interview on August 7th in 2015 and literally six days later on August 13th, 2015, she's even quote to Fortune that says the numbers were fucked. Right after Jason Calcianis was saying, your margins are incredible. 11 million run. I mean, like what happened in seven days? Well, <laughs> that's the thing. Um, nothing happened. It was, a, it was a fluke financing issue that really kind of tripped this whole thing up. And Jason wasn't wrong. Um, things were going incredibly well. Like it was incredible what they were doing. But separately, and Marin wasn't wrong either. I don't think Marin understood how fucked the economics were until we sat down with her and said, again, Marin, you got 400 people billing at 75% capacity. Um, and, and by the way, easy to fix right? Mm-hmm. You just, you know, kind of a realign capacity, but, um, yeah, uh, just, uh, so I mean, when, okay, uh, so you move in, it was public. It was, I believe it was public. It was all, it was all stock deals. There was no cash there. Um, does that mean virtual investors are now on startups.com cap table? They are. And, and, okay. and there was definitely some cash involved as well. Okay. Um, well, remember too, like all of a sudden we're taking on hundreds of people. You well, I was just going to ask that. So how do you, yeah. how do you, let's start pre-acquisition though. So is that right? There was about 10, 11 million top line. 50% though is obviously going directly out. So what Marin said was she was trying to hit $30, build a customer, $15 more kind of minimum wage to the Z, they call them ZAs as virtual assistants. Yep. Yep. Was that accurate? Uh, it is. It doesn't tell the whole story though, because uh, back to your point of having the fixed cost, now that it was really a fixed cost issue. Um, if, if you're hoping to bill your, your ZAs at 120 hours a month, but you're only giving them 60 hours a month, but you're paying them for 120 hours a month. That's yeah, a problem. <laughs> that's, that's your problem. And, and so again, how did you change the model? What was the first thing you did? It, it, I, I would love to say how like incredibly uh, fascinating our approach was. It was just really basic. It was 
let's start like just by starting everything, resetting the meter on everything. And let's first find out how many pe- or how many ZAs we actually need. You know what the answer was? A hundred. Down from 400. 400 where a hundred of them um, shouldn't have never been hired to begin with. Nothing wrong with the ZAs. I'm not knocking the ZAs. I'm just- So, so 300, down. 300 down to a hundred. Correct. The other 200 were all kinds of bizarre one-off situations where it was like, this person only works on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but doesn't work every other week. I mean, there's like, they were hiring so fast that the people they were taking on weren't necessarily the best staff for the company. I see. Okay. So burn was in terms of people expenses about 5 million, it sounds like, uh, or about 600,000 a month. You drove that down to what? 200, hundred, $200,000 a month. It's been profitable ever since we bought it. Okay. Got it. So, so anything else you want to add in terms of how you change the model? Cause I think there's a lot of really good lessons there. Uh, a, a couple things. Uh, the reason I wanted to buy the company is mostly because I didn't believe that company should fail. I was a huge fan of the model. It's a great company. It had um, it just, it solved a really important problem and I didn't want to see a company like that fail. Um, and that wasn't me just, just being kind of like, oh, you know, I'm writing in to kind of, to, to save the day. It was more like every now and again, a company should fail. Like when we work, took a header, I mean, I don't hate, you know, flex office space, but I did look at the, what they were doing. Like, dude, you guys are a little over your toes, right? You mm-hmm. probably need to be taken down a notch. Um, but this wasn't a business where I was like, oh, what a shit business. I was just like, it's a great business. They just missed, they missed the mark on. So you have, really, pricing, you have pricing plans now from 500 a month up to 1500 a month, probably some enterprise deals above that that are really priced bet. off number of hours that you need and number, I believe, of like users or, or maybe those are, are ZAs. Is that accurate? Mostly hours. You know, mostly, mostly hours. hours. Yeah. Okay, got it. And so what have you tried to hit in terms of a margin profile? Let's make the bath easy. If a company's paying you a thousand bucks a month for your services, what margin do you try and build in for yourself? Well, um, we're still trying to keep the, the payout to the ZAs as high as we can. Yeah. Um, so we try to keep them to the 50 to 55% uh, okay. of, of total because we want to make sure that their t- take home is solid. Um, and, and I haven't looked at the math in about a year or so. Last I checked, I think the average ZA was getting paid 21 or $22 an hour. That's great. That's great. I'm sure Marin and I wouldn't be very happy about that. <laughs> well, you know, um, the, the truth is at that price point, you also get a better ZA, which allows us to, to provide better service, which increases our LTV. Um, also, we just think it's the right thing to do. Um, but then the other 50% of, of the, the cogs in the business are customer acquisition costs, administrative costs, et cetera. And it still has a really healthy margin. Jason yeah, Calacanis was not wrong. It's a great business. It just missed. It happens. Yep. yep. Okay. Before we move on to fundable, so so how many folks would are, are paying at least something to use virtual on a monthly basis today? Hmm. Uh, I you know it's weird. I don't really look at that many customer accounts. Um, I would say a couple thousand, but I could be wrong on that. Okay. Great. Let's talk about fundable. So we know how it started. It sort of transitioned, and now it's fundable. So walk through the sort of the origin story, and then I'd love for you to sort of also weave in the government component and how you're working potentially with a niche in the white house, if any at all. And then, yeah. and then how now you see other options like Kickstarter and start engine comparing to fundable. Well, so my feeling all along was that funding just as a whole is this super broken process, right? And I've never looked at funding to be specifically, how do we funnel people into the VC ecosystem? And I want to be clear about that. Number one, because their threshold to absorb deals is very low. There aren't that many VCs. There's hundreds of VCs, like you know, maybe like 800 um, of active VCs. 
Um, and they can only do so many deals. They don't do that high of a volume of deals. Um, there's a school of thought of folks that say, um, I want to be in a business that only takes the best deals working with the best VCs, right? And, and I, I get that. I understand why people feel that way. That's just not the way I feel. I want to fund the most number of entrepreneurs. So my aperture is very different. You know, I, I'm thinking in terms of, I don't care how we help you, whether it's debt, whether it's VC, whether it's seed, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, I just want to help you move your business along. Also worth noting, there aren't that many business types that are fit for VCs. So given how wide our aperture is in startups.com, if we were trying to fit everybody into the VC ecosystem, we'd be leaving most of our customers behind, which you know, mm-hmm. is really something we'd ever intend on doing. Um, when crowdfunding came around, it felt like that was going to change because it felt like you were going to get a new asset class, which is people like you and I investing directly into deals. You know, not as, as angels, but as these kind of micro angels. And what year, by the way, just give people kind of, what year did all this legislation come through? Uh, 2012 was called the Jobs Act, which was going to really uh, loosen up a lot of the regulations around um, how crowdfunding worked and how equity crowdfunding more specifically worked. And some of that actually went through. In other words, some of that actually happened and it did change some of the, the things that we can do with crowdfunding. But the part that it didn't change, and I'm sure a few people would argue against this, but the data, I don't, I don't know, doesn't show it otherwise. What it didn't change is in order to do your traditional crowdfund, where you and I take our deal, we bring it to the market, and the market comes up with cash we couldn't otherwise you know, get from uh, a single angel investor or professional investor. Number one, it's got to be a product that enough people understand. So if you and I are doing an enterprise security product, it may be a great product, but if a lot of people don't understand it, it really kind of limits uh, the number of people who, who could just casually invest. Um, the second part of it is, the number of times you and I can go to the well to put money into these deals is what? I mean, think about it. The average person, they put $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 into a deal that they love. Cool. They do it maybe one other time, maybe the next time. How many people are out there that just have this like endless well of cash that they can put into highly liquid investments that they may never see any payback on? Yeah, highly right? illiquid and not liquid. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. illiquid, uh, my bad. Um, And so I just started to look at that and say, once we get past the novelty of the best new products that are kind of getting pulled out there, and every year we have to kind of top that up with new deals, and we get past the first number of early adopters who are willing to kind of like write larger checks, how many more of those people are there? And I just didn't believe it would be a high enough number. And I remember going to some of these early crowdfunding conferences with all the other platforms and being like, you know, the, the, the dead fish in the room. Being like, guys, come on, like run the numbers here. Uh, how long could this possibly sustain and more importantly grow? And everybody had their theories about what it was and I just, I just didn't see it. I'm not trying to be negative. I want there to be lots of other people investing in deals. My point was just simple economics. I just thought at some point, you're going to kind of run out of your early adopters and I don't know that there's a second tier. And I can't say that I've been proven wrong. I, mm-hmm. it just, it's one of the few cases where I, I wish I was proven wrong. Mm-hmm. So what, I mean, give us a sense today and then we'll fill in sort of the in-between years, the eight years between 2012 and 2020. Like right now today, if people go to Fundable, about how many companies will they see like actively raising that they could invest in? Um, oh boy, how many companies are actively raising on Fundable at any given time? Yeah, like if they go there right now, what would they see? Um, maybe a few hundred companies. Okay, I mean, that's a lot. A few, few uh, hundred actively raising. Yeah, 
oh, we see 20,000 new companies a month on the platform. It's <laughs> 200 that are raising. Now, now okay. mind you, that's a lot more people asked to, to raise in the platform that don't um, because they're not ready yet. You know, d- deals aren't uh, fundable, what have you. But I don't know, man. Um, I, I want to look for solutions that get 20,000 people funded. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you have 20,000 founders expressing some amount of interest of raising on the platform monthly right now, of which a couple hundred actually pull the trigger and do. No, that's across startups.com. So across uh, all of our products, we have 20,000 people that join each month. Got it. Got it. Got it. What about just on the fundable platform? Uh, maybe a couple thousand. Uh, okay. I have to double check. But so I guess what I'm asking is, are you happy with the amount of like thousands hitting fundable relative to the call at 100, 200, 300 that actually do start a fundraise and a small portion of those that actually complete the fundraise? Um, no, because the, the, the problem that I have is I don't think the problem is helping people who need to raise a million dollars or $2 million. I think the problem is way more micro than that. I'm trying to figure out, you know, what are the solutions to help somebody raise $25,000 or $50,000, kind of that broader tier of, of startup capital that could help more people. Now, a lot of those people will then graduate to, to raise more capital and that's wonderful. Um, but I still have yet to see this kind of mass market solution. Crowdfunding yeah. was supposed to be it, you know, to start. There's just some parts of the mechanics of it that just don't quite work. Yep. Okay. Interesting. And round out the, the, the marketplace for us. So all of history for fundable, how many companies have raised at least a dollar and how many investors have invested at least a dollar? Uh, we do run a counter on the amount of capital that's been committed on the platform, which is a little over 500 billion, but okay. I couldn't give you the number as to how many companies. Uh, 500 with an M million or B billion? Uh, 500 million. If I said, billion. I was going to say, no, just <laughs> here, uh, have a little uh, one come in. On. It's My no big deal. Here. Co-founders in the house. What's up, dude? This is little Will. Can you say hi? Can he hear it? Can he hear me or no? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's up? What what? <laughs> <laughs> Will, Will, are you sell, are you selling lemonade yet? Yeah, and he's leaving. He See you, buddy. Sorry about that. I love it. What margins does he have to make at the lemonade stand? Otherwise, you make him shut he, it down. If, if he's not cutting it, he's sleeping on the floor tonight. <laughs> <laughs> he's almost four. We we got to put him to work. I love that. Okay, all right. So you said north of five hundred million capital committed through the platform. What's the difference between capital committed and actually funding closed? Um, we don't see the funding closed because we don't do transactions on our platform. Uh, ah. We don't have that license. Um, so some number of it could fall through, uh, but usually the capital commitments hold pretty true. So who does that? Is that on the founder? How do they actually get the money? Um, founder does it in more traditional uh, means. In other words, uh, the folks that are committing on fundable aren't committing $1,000. Like the, mm-hmm. These are people committing usually twenty-five dollars to $50,000. And so they'll take that through their... Um, their own version of a safe note or whatever they're going to do and then do a wire transfer. There's, there's, there's like eight transfers or you know, whatever it would be in a deal. It's, it's not big enough that you need like a very transactional platform. Oh, 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 I see. I see. So you're essentially giving them like emails of people that said they put in 50K. They then have to follow up with the emails and actually get Correct. them on the safe. Oh, Correct. I see. You bet. I see. You Interesting. Bet. Okay. And you don't know, I, I know back in 2013, you had about 28,000 investors on the platform is what you said publicly. Do you, you don't know what that number is though today? I don't. And you know, uh, the reason I don't know a lot of these numbers is I don't look at them. Um, and, and the funny thing is, uh, I'm our CFO, so I look at our dollar numbers very closely. But I do that. I do like a hundred other things. But the other thing I do a lot of is product development. And every now and then, again, at the beginning of a product, we'll run numbers to see like you know average number of clarity calls and number of people getting funded, etc. But once it's up and running, we kind of just let it run. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I don't look at the the, the totals that closely unless they're mm-hmm. very specific to whatever initiative we're working on at the time. 
Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. So, and what's the revenue model on fundable? How do you guys make money? Um, we've always used it as a SaaS product. It's really just dialed into our $29 a month fee across startups.com. Got it. Yeah. So, so as we sort of get towards wrapping up here, that's the question I want to ask you. So there's not a lot of really individual pricing. I mean, Clarity kind of does because if you're paying an extra mm-hmm. per minute, but everything else, you and I guess virtual does have its own 500 to 1500 a month, but the other plans, it's really like you're either paying 29 a month. Well, I'm doing this off memory. I think it's 20 a month or 29 a month or 349 for life for a license to all mm-hmm. of them. Is that right? Uh, so $29 a month gets you a license to everything. So it's okay. super cheap. Um, the 349 is for lifetime access. A lot of people just don't want to pay the, the monthly fee. Yep. Um, so they, they pay for a lifetime access. Okay. So those are, there's only two pricing options, lifetime access or 29 a month. We, we did, uh, sometimes we'll run a 199 a month or 199 for the year for access. So we're basically just taking the 29 and combining it to the 199, um, for, for a one year, uh, annual access plan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very cool. And, um, are you comfortable sharing? I mean, do you disclose how many customers you have on the platform today? Uh, how many paying customers? Well, it's an eight-figure business, but I can't run backward on all the numbers. Uh, <laughs> so eight-figure, just we'll, we'll leave it at that. But just to clarify, I mean that basically means the company's doing north of ten across all the platforms, north of ten million bucks a year in revenue. Correct. Correct. And how uh, many? How many employees? Debt-free. Two hundred. Two hundred debt-free. We love debt-free too. Two hundred folks. And there's been a lot of this that you've opened. I think you moved a hundred ZAs into a kind of a startup facility in Columbus, Ohio. I believe is that accurate? We were going to, thank God we didn't. Um, okay. We were also going to move our, all of our staff into a, a Columbus vicinity, our facility rather. But uh, we decided a few years back to just uh, do mostly virtual. We have about 30 people in Columbus. And up until a couple months ago, you know, we had our office uh, in Columbus as well. And we, we just got rid of our office. Uh, but we've been mostly a remote company for, you know, since inception for about eight mm-hmm. years. Very cool. Last kind of random question here. I saw you, Sarah Lacey writing some incredible content for you. There are people right now really struggling to figure out how to incentivize and pay top-notch writers and reporters. How on earth did you get her to do these things? Or were you licensing her content from Pando Daily or somewhere else? Uh, a little bit of both. Uh, Sarah and I had a good relationship and she was trying to figure out how to kind of break out beyond Pando. This is you know, a few years back before she's doing what she's doing now. She's since Chairman Pando. mom, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so she was trying to figure out you know, other ways to kind of make more money on content that she had written. And my point was, hey, a lot of the content you've written has been kind of sitting behind the doors of Pando. So anybody that's not Pando will never see it. And I was like, and it's really good content. Like some Very of the interviews she did are off the charts good. Very good. Um, and I said, but, but they've already kind of lived on Pando. Why don't we license it uh, from you um, and put it on startups.com so people can see like the Brian Chesty interview and things like that. And uh, it worked out great. And so we're really lucky to have her. I mean, so what do you pay for that? Is it per word, per article, per what? It's a while ago. Uh, I believe it was per article. Interesting. So guys, there you go. Another, another way to generate content for your site. Go license content. I used to be stuck behind a paywall. All right. Yep. As, we, as we wrap up here, Will, what kind of companies are you looking for today? Are, are you in acquisition mode or are you, you know, focused on building for a while? You know, we're always in acquisition mode. Um, I, I, I fear that during the, as COVID goes on and on, we're going to see a lot more companies selling, um, which isn't necessarily the reason we want to buy them. Um, but we're always looking for anybody that um, serves the startup ecosystem. And what we mean by that is they, they perform a function that helps people start a company, right? So uh, we bought bizplan.com. Um, that's a, a service that helps people start a company. A lot of people will say, well, I sell to startups. It's not really what we do. Most of our focus is in trying to get people off the blocks uh, building their company. 
Mm-hmm. Guys, there we have it. Will Schroeder, 1997, his first cash sort of event in his life. He was called it 2627 and a company called GSW came in and bought 50% of his early agency called NGDA for north of a million bucks. He then stuck with that agency, grew it to a much larger company, about $700 million in total bookings. A lot of that was ad spend though. So $150 million in gross revenue, $25 million net income. That company ended up being bought out in 2002 for $300 million. Uh, he was, again, Will was part owner of a subsidiary of that company. So another cash event for him. He then said, you know what? I want to dive in and help as much I can. As many founders get the businesses launched as possible. And that is the genesis behind today's startups.com with many great brands behind it to help any startup get off the ground and scale. Will, thanks for taking us to the top. (laughs) Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. One more thing before you go. We have a brand new show every Thursday at 1 p.m. Central. It's called Shark Tank for SaaS. We call it Deal or Bust. One founder comes on, three hungry buyers, they try and do a deal live and the founder shares back-end dashboards, their expenses, their revenue, ARPU, CAC, LTV, you name it, they share it. And the buyers try and make a deal live. It is fun to watch every Thursday, 1 p.m. Central. Additionally, remember, these recorded founder interviews go live. We release them here on YouTube every day at 2 p.m. Central. To make sure you don't miss any of that, make sure you click the subscribe button below here on YouTube, the big red button, and then click the little bell notification to make sure you get notifications when we do go live. I wouldn't want you to miss breaking news in the SaaS world, whether it's an acquisition, a big fundraise, a big big sale, a big profitability statement, or something else. I don't want you to miss it. Additionally, if you want to take this conversation deeper and further, we have by far the largest private Slack community for B2B SaaS founders. You want to get in there. We've probably talked about your tool if you're running a company or your firm if you're investing. You can go in there and quickly search and see what people are saying. Sign up for that at nathanlacka.com forward slash Slack. In the meantime, I'm hanging out with you here on YouTube. I'll be in the comments for the next 30 minutes. Feel free to let me know what you thought about this episode. And if you enjoyed it, click the thumbs up. We get a lot of haters that are mad at how aggressive I am on these shows, but I do it so that we can all learn. We have to counter those people. We got to push them away. Click the thumbs up below to counter them and know that I appreciate your guys' support. All right. I'll be in the comments. See ya.